I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. her collar off. She's in her little chair next to me. Got a glass of wine. You got good internet. I can see you. (laughs) It sounds like we're ready to make a podcast. It sounds like we're in theory going to be fine. We've had some bad luck this week though. Yeah and the weather here is pretty crazy so there's like a 30% 30% chance my power is going to go out at some point during oh, the recording. Crazy storm wise? Yeah, we've just had these like absurdly high winds today. Like there's a tornado um, in another part of the state that, in a cruel twist of irony, almost took out the National Weather Service Kentucky headquarters. Whoa. It, that is it, pretty fateful. It didn't, from my understanding, but nonetheless there's a good chance the power is going to go out. Oh, well. Okay, so, so we'll hope and pray and kind of... Ooh, okay. That's scary. I hate tornadoes. Me too. I hate uh, have never been near one. Really? Just kind of hoping... Yeah, it, they're, n- they're not really a thing where I grew up. So, like, my mom, who grew up in the Midwest, was like, you got to know about them, yeah. but have never had the chance to put those skills into practice. Yeah. Frankie and, and I have gone through our uh, storm plan... I'm always terrified something's going to hit when I'm at work and she's at home. And that's what scares me mm-hmm. more than anything. Because, like, I'd want to scoop her up and all the more reason to be vigilant about watching the weather before it hits to be prepared. Yeah, most definitely. Which I was not the other week. And my mom ended up calling me being like, there's really bad storms in your area? And I was like, oh, I should probably look at the weather. And it was real bad. Um, <laughs> we were that's fine, so funny. but other people were not so fortunate. Yeah. Which sucks. Yeah, I, I shouldn't say that's so funny, but my mom did the same thing today. She texted me and she's like, just yeah. watch out for the tornadoes. That's what moms like, are Thanks, for, mom. man. Yep. Always getting their eyes out. Well, let's find some lighter subject matter. We're going to talk about some ladies. I got yeah, a fun, I, I think I got a fun one. I, it's I fun is say, relative. I, I'm really excited. The little, the little teasers you've been giving. Yeah. What did I, I say? Mean, mistress. M- mistress. Restoration mistress. Said. I think so. Great. Okay, so let's go back in time. Are you ready to start? Sorry, I was going. You oh, I know. I'm, I'm here for it. I want to know. <laughs> okay, so let's go back in time um, to England. Um, do you know anything about Charles I or the Reformation? or Is it the Reformation? No, that's wrong. Re- the Restoration. The, the Civil War. The English Civil War. I have some vague memories of like my AP European history class. There was she's, some beheading. I she's think. very dramatic. Yes, it's basically like. Do you know anything about how um, when the Queen gives her speech and opens Parliament? Have you ever seen that happen on C-SPAN? It's worth a view. Have we talked about this? I feel like we've talked about this. I feel like you've made me watch. Is it the dramatic Black person? Didn't we talk like, about him? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So that goes back to King Charles the First because he stormed into Parliament one day and sought out members of Parliament to arrest because they were being treasonous against him. And it was like, uh, what is the point of having a House of Lords and a House of Commons if you can just come and go as you please with this divine right of kings? And so that was like 
the crux of the falling out that occurred between the crown and the people. So he goes in, he tries to arrest people. Uh, they don't really take kindly to it. They, um, I forget, that's how Oliver Cromwell becomes a thing. He's the one that Charles tried to get. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, there's this whole Protestant Puritan movement of like less love for the royal family than there had previously been. That, along with Charles I kind of being a bit obstinate in his divine power and was like, why wouldn't you respect and love me? I am your king. It's my divine right. Doesn't really hold up when people are really pissed. So mm-hmm. um, that's all to say that uh, eventually the Puritans took over power, arrested Charles I, tried him, and executed him and beheaded him. Oof. Yeah. That's not which cute. was like quite the situation. And then um, he had children. Charles, his son Charles, fled to France, I think, and was kind of brought up in secret because these anti-royalist people were seeking him out to kind of end the line, akin to like French Revolution style. And about a hundred years later, would happen. You know what I mean? This is a good hundred years before that, if you think about it. So, king is headless. Then you have a Lord Protector. In Oliver Cromwell. Um, um, have you mm-hmm. listened to the Lord Protector song? No. Uh, I think it's Monty Python. I could be blatantly misspeaking here. Oh. <laughs> uh, but it's all about Oliver Cromwell, Lord he's, Protector of England. And uh, he's a dynamic gentleman, which we don't need to go into too much detail. I will say, when I went to Ireland, they were still talking about how much of a jerk Oliver Cromwell was. So, in modern times. So he did quite a number on the entire island area. Um, but he was in power for quite a some time, but there was still always this faction that uh, loved the royal family and eventually pined for them. And through many machinations, Charles II, Charles I's son, uh, was brought back to England and reinstated onto the throne and became king for a very long time. And that's how we get the term restoration because the king was restored to England after this period of uh, protectorship or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, so that's out. the time period we're in. Um, so if you think about, uh, we're going to talk about a lot about theater history at the time too because this woman has a lot to do with that. So... Um, Cromwell represented a big Puritan movement. Part of that Puritan movement was getting rid of silliness and (laughs) anything fun and any joy that wasn't found in church. So he's very responsible for um, cracking down on vices like the theater and um, body houses and bear baiting and all that stuff. So when Charles got back in, he was like, nope, we're going, we're going full tilt everyone's going to enjoy the fact that we have a royal family i'm going to become a spectacle myself i will be sought out i mean it it's fascinating that it coincides with the fanciest dressed version of men in history like this is the big curly wig situation like oh boy men would dress in flouncy basically like divinely they looked amazing but they were just as fancy as the women (laughs) heels corsets wigs makeup both genders were kind of equal opportunity flounce um i love that equal opportunity flounce yeah there was just like a lot of showy right Mm -hmm. it was a big like 
statement time. Um, yeah, so part of the restoration, so uh, this is all 1650s, 1640s. So Shakespeare has been written and is still being performed. Um, women are just starting to get onto the stage for the first time, because as we all know, in Shakespeare's time, only men were allowed to be on stage. So with the restoration, there's kind of this new wave of like, and we should maybe be a little more... Um, less weird about having women on stage and so you start to see more actresses at this time so let's start with my lady her name is Nell Gwynn or Eleanor Gwynn um, she's commonly known as Nell uh, pretty witty Nell uh, she'll be talked about a lot and do you know about Samuel Pepys the name sounds very he's familiar famous, he's famous because he's this type a weirdo who wrote <laughs> he really is he wrote about everything he did he wrote about too much really but part of mm. that is like he truly documented every moment of his life so and all of his diary or not all of them but a, a lot of his diaries survive today so you have a, a personal first-hand account of life back then and because of his status he was able to like rub elbows with all the people of the time so his diaries are cited quite often for what life and mid 17th century was like in England. Fascinating. Um, yeah, so she's born uh, unclearly in February around 1650. There's some people that say 1642. There's no real gauge because she was born very, very poor. Um, a lot of unknowns about her parentage and things of that nature. Um, and due to her later life, a lot of her early life is sort of gilded or mistreated or um, I mean, this is very much like St. Bridget where a lot of things maybe um, anecdotally told without like a lot of research being done. So mm -hmm. a lot of the facts we know about her are all from other people's opinions. So take that for what you will. We're going to have a fun time anyway. Amazing. So <laughs> her mom's name is Alan. Uh, I don't remember what her dad is. I don't think he plays big a big role in her life. Um, her mom was low-born as well as she was. She said, oh, ooh, here's a fun one. Her mother is said to have drowned when she fell into the water near her house and was buried in 1679 in her 56th year at St. Martin in the Fields. How they have that much detail about her mother, I don't even know. But um, You gotta get those, like, parish birth and death records, man. Yeah. Those yeah. are the best. Her dad... So, she dr mm -hmm. so drowned... When she's, she's like apparently young. just her uh, sixteen seventy nine she would have been nineteen okay at the youngest if not older so she had she was around her mother in her childhood let's get to the good stuff though hold on <laughs> there's some there's some stipulation of like were her parents married her dad died with the statement that he was not so there's a little bit of an element of illegitimacy surrounding her life so she's not really oh no if you want to talk about situations to be born in in 1650 um the illegitimate child of poor people in london is maybe not a great step in uh privilege for people of that time yeah that <laughs> let seems alone a female child <laughs> rough to put it mildly soups rough <laughs> super super rough okay so not the easiest start, but I'm guessing by the fact that we are talking about her on a podcast in the 21st century, 
something interesting is about to happen? Well, that depends on what you find interesting, because she starts cross-dressing and going so, yes. around, getting to, going under the name of William Nell. She puts on a false beard, and she starts um, doing a weird character interpretation of this witty gentleman. Um, and she even goes on stage and is like, look at this kind of sight of this funny man, and you know it's in its... Uh, would not be treated the same way with a modern audience as it would be then. But you can mm-hmm. tell how strict the gender protocols are if the mere sight of a woman dressed as a man produces hilarity and infamy. So this sort of spectacle that she took on made her quite a draw. And she uh, was working at a body house at the time. Body, like B-A-W-D-Y. Um of Madame Ross. And so apparently she would, she had worked there for some time and then started doing this character around the house to like entertain everybody. And uh, apparently she was really good at it. From what I can tell, she's basically like a true improviser and can Mm -hmm. like vamp and come up with a character on the spot and kind of engage with the audience and um, draw a crowd. We might say like a, like a drag King. Yeah. She was dragging it up. Yeah. To the entertainment of the patrons of the body house. Um, Fascinating. Do, 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 do. So yeah, uh, her and her sister were working there at the time. It was, it was probably one of her very few options that she had with the circumstances of her upbringing. Um, and then another kind of, uh, opportunity presents itself in, um, the idea of, hold on selling oranges so (laughs) so part of this like okay part of this lifestyle is like with the restoration of the theaters becoming a thing everybody goes and akin to shakespeare's time there's like a range of income that can attend the theater Mm -hmm. so part of the draw is also like everyone will make money off the people attending the theater like you would do now like everybody selling concessions or seat cushions or whatever think about all those people making money at like one basketball game so she mm-hmm. and her sister um were granted license to vend and sell oranges lemons fruits sweetmeats and all manner of fruiters and confectioner wares within the theater the woman that was in charge was called orange mall or molly <laughs> orange mary megs anyway a former prostitute so there's also this element of like the orange sellers would sell fruit and then some, because it's like all of these people are here. They all have cash to burn. Oh, I'm going to dress appropriately for my task and maybe sell an orange and get an extra penny or two. So there's a lot of um, suspicion that they're also like selling their bodies while I don't think oranges. I'm ever going to look at oranges quite the same way again. Yeah. So apparently it was quite popular thing. I don't know why oranges. I think they were exotic and interesting. So... You could probably get a good price for them. Mm-hmm. Um, with this kind of many classes attending the same event, uh, this is how Nell and uh, richer men started circling the same area. So she starts to get involved with various gentlemen as like a paramour type situation. Um, she also is a uh, 
she's been an orange girl. She's dressed up as a gentleman. It's kind of like she's she's meant to be in the theater at this time in terms of theater history because they're Mm -hmm. just now allowing women on stage. And with the caveat of like so many of Shakespeare's roles had women dressing up as men. And since she was already doing that, it sort of made sense that she would fit into all these roles. Interesting. And so she had she was apparently very good looking, had a very lively wit and strong, clear voice. So she was easily like just put at the forefront. And because of her kind of comedic timing, she was very successful. So right after so she's in her teens, she's rocking out on stage. Um, she starts to get involved with Charles Hart, who is uh, becomes her uh, boyfriend for a while. Let's call him a boyfriend. Okay. Gentleman okay. caller. I don't know. She would perform professionally. She would get play. She starts to get a following. She starts to become popular. She starts to become known in her own right as Mrs. Nell. Um, always making quite a, quite a sight when she has to play anybody that wore pants. <laughs> Not pants again? I know. Can you believe it? There's a lot of highlighting of the pants wearing. It's just like mm-hmm. unimaginable that a woman's not wearing a skirt or a dress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep, did, yep, she, yep. did she have to get a pants permit? I don't think they had pants permits then. I think you were allowed to do it. I mean, okay. on the stage only, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Like scandalous, but not illegal. Yeah. 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 So um, Peeps, Mr. Peeps kind of starts to start talking about Nell in his diaries in, like, 1665. And he talks about her by name. So she's clearly becoming, like, the site of London society. Like, you'd have to go see her in a play. She's sort of the it girl of the time. Mm-hmm. She sticks to comedy. Drama does not suit her, she says. Um, <laughs> that checks out. Yeah, she's like, I want to have fun. I want a good time. I want to enjoy myself, and I'm good at it. So let's do this. So she's pretty much a star in all respects, and one of the first like women actress stars at this time because they were unheard of before this. Mm-hmm. Um, she would also become very popular playing opposite her gentleman heart as like the lead romantic couple in a comedy. So they started to be packaged deal and like was the Reese Witherspoon of the rest of her <laughs> Sorry. I was wondering like what, what modern performer mm-hmm. we would compare her to. Mm-hmm. She's like us. Well, like who's like bodier though? Who's like. I mean, I'm getting like a lot of. grosser. Maybe Kristen Taylor Bell. Mac vibes, but. Yeah. That might be a little, yeah. a little niche. Yeah. So, um, like you do when you're in any time that prior to 1800, a plague hits. So some of the theaters shut down for a little while. Uh, The king, um, whenever there's a plague, the king gets out of town. I don't know if you know that. So inevitably, when he goes out of town, everybody follows him. So it's around this time that they start seeing, like, Nell is engaging with the king as, like, like outer circles, but, like, following him around in order to, like... Because you have to play with his company in order for him to see you, because they do, um... What's it called? Oh, uh, what's it called when you, like, are the benefactor? Patron? Like the patron? Yeah, so the king patronized, like, certain theater groups, and they would perform only for him. So Nell starts following those theater groups around. Um, she's... They, they cite so many plays that she did, and I'm like, I don't really, I mean... If you guys really want to know all the plays she was in, I can tell you, but... Because Samuel Pepys wrote them all down. Thank you, Peepers. 
little, little Mr. Peepees. He did it. Um, <laughs> okay. So, oh God. Um, he, one point he talks about this new play called The Maiden Queen. This is a huge play at the time and apparently it was a huge deal because it's one of the first times that the king kind of takes note of her and she plays a uh you know probably a really sexist awful part but she kills it so um peeps writes it is impossible to have florimel's part which is the most comical that was ever made for woman ever done better than it is by nelly so he loved her that is some high praise some high praise i can only imagine how the acting was i bet it was so great she got to wear her pants again oh the shock and awe of a woman in pants in 1667 God, when did she get with the king i did not edit this well hold on <laughs> okay so when you say get with the king i mean where do you think this is headed i mean i'm, I'm pretty sure given where you introduced her where this is headed yeah she's uh she's yeah she's she gets around like she has a couple other actor boyfriends and some some pretty rich dudes but um charles is known for having affairs he actually has a pretty for a royal at that time has a pretty good marriage and it's sort of known that he will wander and the queen's sort of like yeah whatever as long as i stay the queen that's fine um and he actually doesn't have any legitimate children by her but he has about like i don't want to say like 10 to 20 kids outside of wedlock so he got around and at this time it's like known he gets around so for on the part of young women seeking his attention you sort of know what you're getting into you know what mm-hmm. i mean and the other thing that i think is like both really kind of morally questionable but really smart in a certain way is the fact that he like was open on purpose i think it's important to know like he maybe knew that that was a nice distraction for people to focus on so that they wouldn't maybe kill him like they did his dad. So he's like, yeah, if you want to eat this Kardashian nonsense, please do. Please engage with like, oh, who's he dating now? What? Oh, he left her for her? Oh, can you believe it? They're both in the castle at the same time. Intrigue, intrigue, conjecture, conjecture. So then they're not going hey why do we pay such high taxes he's like oh look over here what is my new kid's name today will he become legitimized no one knows you know what i mean i really want you to write like the next reality tv show yeah (laughs) framed exactly like that yeah i think it would go over well with like big floofy wigs oh yeah no like full period costuming and everything but like we're talking like have you seen the favorite no, I really need to. Okay, but you've seen the trailer, right? Yeah. Those I'm... those costumes. Like, we're pre that, but it's getting... Mm-hmm. Those wigs are the thing. Yeah, it's, it's dynamite. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a great time. So, in this weird way, the Duke of Buckingham takes on the manager... Takes on the role of, like, manager of their affair. How that works is I think he just kind of coordinates them getting together and he uh, stage manages their affair yeah it's sort of like a weird manager agent situation because i think he wants a piece of the take and also like if he's involved in them then he gets to have favor with the king and gets to like leech off the relationship in a creepy way because everyone is super morally wonderful at this time is this i'm just asking for a friend like is this still a job one can get for like royal families 
I feel like uh, the pay is probably country? better than like uh, like equity stage management pay. Oh, yeah, probably 100%. I don't know if Queen Elizabeth is taking on any lovers right now because that would be weird. But uh, I mean, like Prince of Monaco probably could use a little bit of help or oh, yeah. something There's like that. some like, stuff there. Ooh, like boy. some obscure European monarchs. Yeah. There's, who else has a king right now? Sweden? I don't know. I think it's so. harder now, social media, man. Um, apparently, like, Buckingham is like, hey, Nell, I'm going to get you in with the king. Don't worry about it. I'll handle everything. And she's like, okay, well, you'll pay me $500, or sorry, 500 pounds a year to be kept. And that's my offer. Take it or leave it. And apparently, like, they were like, whoa, who do you think you are? That is a hefty price tag. And she's like, yeah, you're the king. Why would I ask for less? Like, basically, it's like, I yeah, love that. I know what's going on here. Also, I'm making my living here, so I don't really, I don't need this second job, really, but that's fine. <laughs> but if, if um, you're going to take my time, I would like to be well compensated. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but apparently, uh, the king was super into her and, like, they got together anyway. Um, apparently, they also became very, over time, very devoted to each other. So it started off as, like, a monetary transaction, but then it, they become actually quite close and seem to really enjoy That's each very other. very sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, do 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 uh, She has... This is where we get into, like, some great quotes of hers <laughs> and like her body nature is represented in all of the quotes that survive of her and like some of them are probably apocryphal but some of them are pretty funny so apparently the fact that she had already been the mistress of a charles hart and a charles sackville she calls king charles um, who is technically king charles ii of england she's like yeah but you're my king charles the third because i've already had two charles so it's just like <laughs> you know what i mean which I'm sure if you're a king who gets, like, bowed and scraped to all the time, you actually probably like that every once in a while. Yeah. That's so as one. they become more involved with each other, she kind of takes a step back from her acting, but is now living the high life. Do-do-do. Um, they end up having a child at one point. Um, hold on. Nell uh, has a son. Guess what they name it. Charles. Because you gotta name everybody the same thing. Um, this is his seventh son by five separate women because it's a party time in a party land. Um, she has this like kind of tete a tete with, a se- with another mistress uh, from France and Nell kind of like banks on the fact that she is down to earth and interesting to kind of get in head like the the other lady is like royal and you know subscribes to all the standards of women of the time so she's delicate and quiet and cries when she's sad and openly and Nell's just kind of like I don't care I could leave this tomorrow it's fine I already had a baby what whatever um uh Apparently, her rival at one point says, anybody may know she has been an orange wench by her swearing. So, I bet she was just really fun to listen to at court. Just, like, oh, yeah. sling, slinging F-bombs and, like, spitting into a corner or something. She seems to be, like, the one you'd want to, like, hang out yeah. at your salon or whatever. Yeah. Um, she moves into a townhouse owned by the king. 
she raises her children there. They have, uh, I think, a couple more kids. For sure another boy. Um, they are apparently, like, each other's, like, awesome. They love each other. They He stays um, with her for the rest of his life, which is sort of unheard of at the time. And based on his track record was not typical. Like, he would flit around. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are two stories about... Oh, yeah, her oldest son is given an earldom, so, like, he also treats her kids pretty well. He doesn't fully legitimize any of his children, but he does try to take care of them the best they can. Oh, poor things. Sons of the king. Super hard. Yeah, being an earl is Um, so difficult. Yeah, but for her part, her kids get houses, they get livelihoods, they get to never have to hustle the way that she did so there's something to be said for that living the um, english dream yeah she continues to act on and off a little bit while she's staying uh as the king's mistress but overall she sort of like devotes her life to him as they get older and older is relative because she's probably like in her 20s really <laughs> uh he eventually passes away in 1685 and his brother inherits for him because, as we said, he had no legitimate children. He does ask on his deathbed to not let her, uh, he says, let not poor Nellie starve, which I think is sweet. So he's like, I know she's not my wife, but please don't make her suffer because I didn't, you know, marry her or whatever that is. Yeah. So James actually takes that as true and provides her a pension. He pays off the mortgage on her house so she has a place to live for the rest of her life. And at the time, she had really bad credit, so he actually restored her credit and allowed her to live comfortably for the rest of her life. Um, wow, that is that is not the direction I thought that was going Not typical, in. no. You could tell the kind of time was oddly liberal in a lot of ways. I mean, it wasn't by today's standards, but there was some kind of different tone going on at the time. Charles II is really specifically weird in terms of his kingdom. Yeah. Um, so in 1687, so if we're counting, if she was born in 1650, she's 37. She suffers a stroke <laughs> that leaves her paralyzed on one side, to which I'm like, life is hard when you're an orange seller. I mean, she had fun, but dang. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. Uh, she had another stroke in May, so she basically makes out her will, sets up her kids for the rest of her life. She also donates some of her money to a charity, which is like good on her. She, she had a good heart. Um, she probably had syphilis because hello. Um, so they think now Checks looking out. back, they're out. like, I think we know why she died. Uh, not a lot of mystery there. Um, yeah, and she left. Uh, she left quite a bit of money and, like I said, like was able to give it to the poor of um, some parishes and help those in need. Um, she's buried um, on November 17, 1687, and so she had this final request for her funeral, which the Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury presided over. And Incredible. his sermon says... Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. <laughs> so even in death, she was like, eh. <laughs> That's excellent. Like, I'm trying to find these other quotes I had of her because there were some really good ones. Oh, here's a good one. 
She's remembered for her very um, good wit, as I have said before. And this is a story from, I'm not even going to say the title, some fancy French dude. (laughs) Apparently she was walking through the streets of Oxford. And the mob was like, oh, it's the king's mistress. It's the king's mistress. Thinking it was that rich lady that we talked about that was like her rival. They're like, oh, it's that fancy French lady. It's that fancy duchess. And she, that duchess happened to be Catholic, which also at this time, Catholic and Protestants were not gelling very well. It was a whole big complicated thing. So um, she's kind of hidden from view. And so she pokes her head out and they're like, it's that, it's that, um mistress whore whatever they said because they're probably having fun um and she goes good people you are mistaken i am the protestant whore and then like (laughs) continues on her merry way so i think i'd like her a lot very self-aware very self um yeah she's just awesome oh here we go um she is noted for another remark made to her coachman who was caught fighting with another man who had called her a whore which oh that's nice she broke up the fight saying i am a whore find something else to fight about (laughs) which i just love so she's got this like brand yeah anyway um she kind of caught the she wasn't in the zeitgeist as it were for a very long time but you can tell that there's at the time she made such an impression that her legacy sort of lives on in a lot of ways. For example, uh, a a house in Chelsea is given the it was given the name Nell Gwynn House, and in the main entrance is a statue of her with a King Charles spaniel at her feet. Which, by the way, he bred these spaniels, and like that's how they're tied to him because he was a big fan of those little dogs that are really really cute um <laughs> so she has a little king charles spaniel on her feet which i think is very telling but they also think it's like i think it's the only one if not one of very very few statues of a royal mistress in the city like queens yes kings sure but like this kind of level of awareness and acceptance of her as like a cultural moment is mm-hmm. kind of unheard of yeah, and I think it's like because of her good humor and like awareness of place, quote unquote. You know, mm-hmm. she knew who she was. She didn't. I don't know. She was just like appreciated by the people. By from what I can tell. Yeah, I probably because she why. made them laugh. When in doubt, there's like a ton of plays written about her. There's a new musical that came out. Like a well, musicals. I don't know. There's a play with singing in it. Um, she's in a lot of movies. I found out about her by, guess what? A movie. Because that's mm-hmm. the way I find mm-hmm. out about pop culture and history and things. There's this really good movie called Stage Beauty. And it's about an actor who is famous for playing women and kind of has what we would call like kind of gender fluidity in a way that's not acceptable at the time. So he doesn't, he's made his life being Desdemona. And then all of a sudden he's not allowed to play her anymore. And he's sort of like, but I am her and she's me. And like has a lot of crisis of dealing with that as a woman takes his part away from him or what he sees as his part. That sounds incredible. It's a great movie. Have a view. But um, B player in that is an actress playing Nell Gwynn and she's delightful. 
And I'm she's kind of like <laughs> leading the charge in that particular occurrence of history. She's like, um, I'm a great actress, Charlie. You need to put everybody, you need to put all women on stage because you like how much I act. And he's like, that's true. And like starts to, they're kind of like the B team. Mm-hmm. They come in for a good laugh every once in a while, but they're pretty fun. Um, it's a good movie. I, I appreciate it. But it also, it, it holds true of like the absolute kind of vague gender that's happening anyway. Like it, it is such an odd time just because of like fashion <laughs> to really delineate gender. Cause it's, so, they're doing the same stuff, slightly mm-hmm. different cuts, but everybody's wearing like the same amount of stuff. Um, there's no like feminine colors or things in that. I don't know. It's very fascinating in terms of like a gender lens to my very ignorant view of it. Um, so it sort of fits in well with this whole like men are playing women on stage and women are playing men and we don't know what's going on and it's like you wouldn't look at how mm-hmm. they all dress you wouldn't know who is who or, or and it doesn't matter because it's all fine and everyone's gonna be okay and <laughs> like I don't know <laughs> it's an interesting time yeah definitely it's bizarre and interesting I think I've I've never particularly been interested in like restoration theater but i think you've just made a really good case for being more interested in it well secondary point there's a really good show on uh hulu called harlots have you seen that i have seen an episode or two yeah that ish is good that is really good because it it's it's around the same time i want to say it's around the same time it's like pre or just around the american revolution time maybe just a little before Okay, so a little bit later, but, like, still... And there's, like, some crazy statistics about, like, there were more prostitutes in England in the Victorian era, like, ratio-wise, than there are now. Like, it was everywhere. This kind of, like, buttoned-up society meets this otherworldly thing that we don't think about. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just find it fascinating. And Nell Gwynn saw that opportunity and was like, that's my jam. I'm going to have a great time. She was very much like a, yeah, live life to the fullest, like Mm -hmm. treat people the way you want to be treated in a way or, well, no, that's going a little bit far, but like (laughs) have a good time and like be who you are and know where you came from and not hold it against anybody. Mm -hmm. I don't know. She's fascinating. Yeah, she really is. And none of the like portraits of her do her justice because they, have you ever noticed that anything painted before 1800, everybody looks the same? Mm-hmm. What is that about? They're all uh, like chinless <laughs> wonders with like weird foreheads. Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel like at one point in like a history class in college, we talked about this because we had all noticed a similar thing. And there was some reason for it that has now they since all escaped look me. The same. They all have like rosy cheeks and like jowly faces, probably because they were all related. Everybody that had a portrait was probably related. I mean, yeah, that's definitely a part of it. Well, thank you so much. That yeah. I've really enjoyed that. I feel no like I win. learned. I've got a new favorite favorite actor, if anyone ever asked yeah, me. Yeah, right? Again. Nell Gwynn. Pretty witty Nell. Pretty witty Nell. All right. Cool. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and learn some more. Sounds good. Okay. So, Katie, I know 
pretty much every time we do like a 19th century woman i like poke a little bit of fun at like those long three or four name protestants that we run into all the time yeah you gotta have a hyphen yeah but i think this woman might take the missing history prize for longest name oh boy here goes Maria de la Soledad Leona Camila Vicario Fernandez de San Salvador. Nice. Yeah. How many is that? Uh, Counting all of the words. I think it's 11. 11. Yeah. Uh, So. Okay. Everybody's represented in the family. (laughs) Yeah. So for simplicity's sake, we're just going to call her. Leona Vicario. Yeah. Uh, And we'll go from there. Okay. Um, So she is born in Mexico City in 1789. She is the child of a peninsulare merchant and a criollo mother. And so what that means is in the Spanish colonies at the time, there's a pretty strict, basically like racial caste system, wherein depending on who your parents are in all sorts of combinations sort of determines where you sit in the social structure. And it's like codified. There's sort of legal systems built around it. Um, And the people at the very peak are like Spanish people born in Spain. And they're called peninsulares because they are born on the peninsula. Mm -hmm. And then right below them, um, you have the criollos um, who are Spanish people born in the Americas. And that divide is going to become really important. But for the moment, it just means she's really rich. She's really, really, like she's as close to the top of the like social pyramid as you can get Mm -hmm. uh, without being from Spain. Um, And so she's going to get a really top-notch education and is going to be like one of the few of young women who is going to become very educated, very well read in the Spanish colonies generally, but specifically in Mexico City. Um, So she's going to learn history, painting, French, music, uh, what passes for political science in the late 17, early 1800s. um, And pretty early... What even is that? (laughs) Well, so it's a lot of enlightenment stuff. Um, so she's going to be... Your you know, favorite. I love the enlightenment. You super don't, but that's fine. <sighs> yeah, not a fan. But she loves it. And so that's great for her. Um, <laughs> she loves it so much that she actually is going to translate an early French enlightenment text called The Adventures of Telemachus into Spanish. That sounds so boring. I'm proud of her, but that sounds so boring. It's like, ooh, Is okay. not how I would Live be choosing life, to girl. spend my time. It's okay. She's, you know, she felt it needed to be done, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but she's also going to read a lot of um, political tracts, history, natural philosophy. Uh, and in doing this, is going to cultivate what we would sort of think of as like a classical liberal outlook on the world. Um, So she's not at the, like, burn-it-all-down socialist anarchist phase, uh, but she's definitely in... Unfortunately, she's not going to get there as much as, like, my heart wants her to. Um, But she's definitely in that, like, 
the sort of like spoiled rich girl rebel way where she's like reading things that would definitely like piss off her parents she's like oh i'm woke i'm 1789 woke don't even worry about it (laughs) Uh, and this is of course a very interesting time to be 1789 woke because the american revolution is just wrapping up the french revolution is just kicking off yeah it is the haitian revolution is about to kick off and so there's this sort of whole world of atlantic revolutions that at least in the u.s i don't think we really think about as being connected but at the time especially in latin america people are looking at these revolutions in the u.s and they're like that's an example of what we would like to do um because it's in a, it's a lot of ways that's a really similar situation. Um, so you get, well, I'll finish talking about her, then we'll talk about some politics, mm. and then we'll like bring those two things together. Um, mm. So in classic missing history fashion, in 1807, at age 18, both of her parents die unexpectedly. Whoa! So she is an orphan at 18. They're going to leave her a pretty massive inheritance, but because she is not technically, she's still technically a minor until she's 21, Mm -hmm. and because she's a woman, she is put under the guardianship of her uncle. And this, like, next thing that happens, I can't really quite tell. It's scandalous, but I can't quite tell in which direction it's scandalous, but rather than going and living at his house, she, like, he rents like in a like a house next door and she lives independently at this house okay. and i can't tell if it's scandalous because he's like not he's letting her live alone and she's like you know a, a woman a young woman living by herself without like a male protector um or if it's because um she like fought with him about it and like in a way, like, kind of took him to court to be like, I don't want to live with you, and this was kind of the compromise. So it's a little unclear, like, how much of it is, like, uh, her fighting for it and him, like, getting getting her and being like, no, I know you don't want this, even though other people are going to judge me, but, like, I'll let you do your own thing. Mm. Um, and so what this basically means for her is she has an incredibly unusual amount of independence Um, for a young woman in Mexico City in the early 1800s. And she's going to use that independence to, like, keep reading, keep sort of pursuing liberal politics. Um, And this is not going to endear her to her uncle a whole lot. Um, He is of the much more, like, older conservative faction. And so to try to calm her down, to be like, hey, girl, chill out... (laughs) Because, you know, people love being told to calm down. Mm-hmm. Um, Works every time. Mm-hmm. Super effective. Mm. Um, so he arranges for her to be married to a colonel in the Spanish army named Octaviano Obregón. Great. Uh, luckily for her, he gets transferred back to Spain before they can get married. Darn. So dodge Their that bullet. Their love was so real. So real. Mm. Um, Had they met? I think they, like, meet, but don't hit it off, uh, surprisingly, right? Um, But also, she kind of has a thing for someone who works for another one of her relatives, a lawyer 
by the name of Quintana Roo, which is just like an ace name for someone who's going to end up being like a sort of radical rebel. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is a liberal lawyer who's sort of working in the same like liberal political spheres that she's in. And she's like super into him. But of course, her uncle's like, no, 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 you are not marrying him. So they don't get the chance to get married. Um, but so brings us to like 1808. So things are happening pretty quickly at this point, like a little over a year since her parents died. Um, and Napoleon's going to invade Spain. So peak time. Yeah. A lot, a lot's going to happen. He was, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's going to overthrow the Spanish monarchy and in sort of put his brother joseph on the throne and what did he do he was related to napoleon that's about all you need you'll be in charge of spain yeah uh that's surprisingly not gonna go super well for them shocking uh people love that i'm sure they do people are like oh his name is bonaparte great also bonaparte's italian can we talk about it like hero of france is totally like sicilian or something i think corsican is that corsican you're right you're totally right um but so this this is sort of like the spark that spanish america needs to kind of kick off what has been like a very long simmering set of issues um like i sort of mentioned that are very similar in a lot of ways to the issues going on in the British colonies before the American Revolution. Yeah, well, I'm sure, like, seeing that success was like, oh, this is a possibility now. Yeah, exactly. Because it is really sort of, it's the same set of grievances. It's the same type of people who are starting to organize politically around similar issues against a sort of similarly authoritarian government. Um, Because at this point, particular period before spain gets captured by the french they're trying to institute a series of reforms to colonial government and they're trying to get more money out of it like it's expensive to run these colonies so they want them to be more efficient more responsive to the spanish government Um, but this is of course really going to piss off the colonial elites because they're used to running things their own way or very like american colonies style of like benign neglect where like you sort of leave us to our own thing we'll pay the like little bit of taxes we need to pay as long as you don't bother us and then all of a sudden they're like no yeah exactly and we're not super happy about that and in particular this sort of caste system becomes a huge problem because as part of these reforms there are rules now that basically only spanish-born officials so people born in spain are allowed into the upper echelons of government So you have all of these, like, old, rich families who are used to running things who are all of a sudden hitting this glass ceiling of, like, oh, sorry, we actually, we can't promote you any further than this because we can't let Spanish-born Spaniards take orders from American-born Spaniards. Oh, And, like, right, so it's it's this... It's such a distraction. It's just such, like, a look over here and worry about this thing. Yeah, and in a way, like, that's kind of what the Spanish government was hoping. They were like, well, if we build this system, it'll sort of pit groups against each other, and then we'll be able to govern. 
And in this particular moment, it comes and bites them in the ass because you have all of these wealthy, well-connected people with a lot of time on their hands because they're not allowed to do anything in the government who kind of decide, well, hey, the Spanish king just got overthrown. The government is in absolute turmoil. Maybe now is the moment to sort of take things over for ourselves. Yeah, but because presumably by their standards, like there is no ruler of them right now. Exactly. Right? Like, oh, we we will swear allegiance to the Spanish throne, but now it's the French throne and we don't subscribe to that. So we're not actually technically revolting. That is exactly 100% it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lawyers. Ex- exactly. And I mean, the thing is like, most of them are lawyers, so this is exactly what they're going to do. Um, they Bunch form out of work lawyers. That's a good combo. It never is. That I feel like that's that's why it's important to keep your lawyers employed because otherwise they will get up to trouble <laughs> like this. <laughs> okay. um, not that I'm lawyers are doing just fine. They don't need government handouts or whatever. But we want to keep revolutions on the down low. Keep your lawyers employed. Um, so in this case, what they're going to do um, is all throughout Spanish America, they're establishing these juntas or councils where local elites are gathering and they're sort of governing in the name of the deposed Spanish king. Basically, like, we're running things until he gets back and, like, we're not really overthrowing the government. We're just, like, in a holding pattern. But obviously... Just what keeping the government warm until he gets back. Exactly. But obviously what they're really doing is, like, trying to seize more local control Mm -hmm. um and in the summer of 1808 this is happening in um mexico or what the spanish call new spain and the viceroy who is the representative of the king who's been overthrown can we time out yes how lazy is it to call everything new spain uh soups lazy oh so boring new york new england new mexico yeah, there's so some boring. super. Find a new name. Well, that right—that's the thing. There's some su- super interesting research about like what does it mean to like call something new blank uh, that I have to admit I have never read, but I'm aware that it exists mm-hmm. and it supposedly says some things about like imagining like a better renewed community or something like that. But then you think about the names in the U.S. that aren't new blank or normally Native American names that have been appropriated. And oh, then, fair. like, misspelled. So fair. it's oh, a bit fair. of a balance. Oh, fair. Okay. Um, I think, like, it, like, I, like, I think about, like, South Bend, Indiana. Like, that's yeah. okay. Like, it's talking about a river. But then, like, Mishawaka, right next mm-hmm. door, is obviously, like, a Native, Native American, American name. Yeah. So not a lot of winning happening. No. Um, which, coincidentally enough, it's complicated and problematic. Hashtag missing history. So New Spain. <laughs> so New Spain is trying to form one of these councils. And there's a group of conservatives in Mexico City who are a little happy that the, vo- that the viceroy is like, yeah, let's do this. So basically they decide that the, the duly appointed representative of the king isn't being royalist enough. So they violently overthrow him to establish an even more, quote-unquote, royalist government. Uh, Yeah, it's... That seems intense. It's great. It's kind of confusing, but basically what you have now is a dictatorship that is 
super conservative, super royalist, and is going to run Mexico for the next 12 years. That seems problematic. Yeah, it's not going to go well. A royalist to Bonaparte? No, so so royalist to the Spanish monarch who's been overthrown. Who's not around. Exactly. So then... Okay. Yeah, so it is sort of this, like, are they really royalists, or are they just seizing power for themselves and, like, claiming that mantle? We're going to go ahead with that that answer there. It seems most likely. Um, yeah. So, Vicario is right in the middle of this. She's in Mexico City. Her uncle is a pretty staunch supporter of the, like, existing colonial system. So he's fairly conservative, when things start getting crazy, he's writing sort of in support of, like, maintaining the status quo. Um, but she obviously has grown up in the very, like, world of liberal politics. She, because one of her parents is not born in Spain, like, has encountered the, like, wealthy version of discrimination where, like, she can go to some parties but not all the parties kind of a thing. Um, so she as things develop, starts gravitating more and more to the side of the liberals, who, in 1810, when, like, the rebellion part of this kicks off, are going to become rebels. Um, So in 1810, a priest in northern Mexico named Father Hidalgo sort of sparks a populist uprising against the government in Mexico City. Um, And soon after... Uh, Vicario is going to decide to sort of throw her support behind those rebels um, secretly, of course, because obviously if you do that publicly in Mexico City, you are going to get executed. And she doesn't really want that to happen. Uh, so she's going to join a group called the Guadalupes, which is a secret organization of sort of wealthy liberal criollos who are in Mexico City and who are using their connections and their money to support the rebels as they're fighting the government. Um, so she helps conduct espionage, um, sort of collects information about troop movements to send cool. to the insurgent leaders, gets money and supplies gathered together. Um, in one case, they are going to pack an entire printing press into like a carriage. Um, and because they're upper class women, like no one's going to search their carriage. So they just what, like, are they going to carry bobbins and needles and string or thread? Exactly. Nothing that could possibly be An helpful. An apple basket to make a pie for your husband. <laughs> yeah. And so literally like right under the nose of the guards, they drive their carriage out of the city with a printing press and send that to the rebels so that they can start printing their pamphlets and like putting out statements and all of the things that you do in an As early 19th move. century revolt. Yeah. Um, And that's actually what is going to kind of get her in trouble. Um, So in 1813, you know, she has been pretty regularly supplying the rebels with guns, supplies, um, including cannon-making supplies, which I'm like a little unclear what that qualifies as. Just picturing that smuggling moment, and I think literally, like, I know she's in probably a carriage or whatever, but I literally think of her, like, keeping a printing press under her dress and like yep. trying to like shuffle out <laughs> or with cannonballs like one just going clang just like out from between her legs mm-hmm. and having to be like whoa i didn't know that was in there my bad 
Yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of the mental image I have as all of this is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, what is more like the case is she's like sending her servants to do this kind of stuff. Um, and in 1813, one of them gets captured and sort of gives her up. And she's like, oh no, I don't want to get arrested. So she flees and goes into hiding. Um, but after spending less than 10 days sort of hiding out, she's like, oh, this sucks. I don't like this. I miss my like warm bed and the like staff of 15 people who's doing things for me. Um, and she gets in touch with her uncle who is like, it's fine. I've got you covered. Like there's a Royal pardon waiting for you when you get back, just like turn yourself in and everything's going to be okay. Uh, because this is our podcast though. Do we think everything's going to be okay? No. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not. Probably not. I'm guessing. Um, so pretty soon after... She turns herself in. Uh, the royalist officials who arrest her are like, yeah, so we're not pardoning you. And instead she gets sent to a prison where she is interrogated for several weeks. So they want to know who her contacts are, who else in the city should they be arresting. Um, and she refuses to name any of her contacts, even though she's interrogated for about two months. And then in April, the insurgents send some officers who are disguised as royalist officials to help her escape. So they like come in and they're like, we need to talk to her. We have to like keep interrogating her and they take her off into a room. And I feel like it's the kind of thing where like they take off the fake mustaches and they're like, actually we're here to rescue you. And so they like take her out of the city at the dead of night. And Mm -hmm. she like flees hundreds of miles into Western Mexico um, where she will be reunited with her lover (gasps) and they're going to get married yay Uh, and so now they're married and they're running from the government they're sort of fighting organizing rebel groups thought you said it wasn't gonna go well michael i mean like the whole like getting tortured for two months thing is like not great look at that end of the rainbow you know yeah fair i mean at least for me this is this is on more of an upward track than we're used to that's fair um so they're going to spend about four years sort of running and hiding and fighting. Uh, their first child is going to be born sometime in like 1817 oh while they're still on the run. Um, oh but 1818 is going to roll around. And at this point, most of the other rebels are killed. They're defeated or they've accepted a royal pardon. And so they sort of put some feelers out and they're like, hey, can we come back? Is that okay? Um And so they're granted a royal pardon and they move back to Mexico City in 1820 where they sort of try to like keep things on the down low, like not draw too much attention to themselves. Um, But Mexico is going to get its independence from Spain in 1821. And when that happens, her husband is going to take a pretty prominent role um, in the new government. He's going to serve as the secretary of state a couple of times. The senator like is a pretty big deal. Nice. Um, And she's going to of quietly retired to domestic life as a woman of her period should well earned too you had a baby on the run you get to sleep however long you want oh yeah um she is going to come back in the 1830s to write a pretty scathing set of articles and some newspapers sort of defending her and her husband as like real patriots who 
sort of fought uh like alexander hamilton style like well you well i i don't i can't remember the line but he's basically like throwing shade at jefferson for like not actually fighting Mm -hmm. it was sort of one of those situations Mm -hmm. um and she is gonna pass away in 1842 um and then president um santa anna of alamo fame Mm-hmm. names her the sweet mother of the fatherland like that's her official title which is a little much okay uh but he tried she, <laughs> um she's gonna get a state funeral and is the only civilian woman in mexican history to be given a state funeral that's uh, pretty cool yeah and her um she gets disinterred and buried in new places a bunch of times um, What's up with that? I don't know. But so in 1910, right before the Mexican Revolution kicks off, she's going to be interred in the Independence Column in Mexico City, along with other, like, heroes of the War of Independence. Um, I think now her ashes are in the National Portrait Gallery or one of the national museums in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, she's had quite a journey since she passed. Um but she sounds I would, like a, a Catholic saint, <laughs> just like, rolling around in different churches. One finger style. to the. Ex- I think it, it's a sort of similar thing to that. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like a tradition of we are going to memorialize these people, and we need their actual body to do it. Yeah, we can't just like a plaque. We need to have the actual skull in the building, or it's not real. Exactly. Oh, poor thing. She just needed a rest. Yeah. But she, I mean, she got it. She, you know, she enjoys like a nice, like basically two decade retirement. Yeah. In I Mexico was a little City. worried there in the middle. I was like, I didn't think we'd get that much of an upswing, but that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and like, it's, it's interesting um, because she really does fit this like upper class liberal revolutionary model where she's like super interested in political reform Mm -hmm. but then couldn't care less about like social stuff Mm. like her sort of biggest concern after the war is like getting all of her property back that was confiscated by the government the government sort of gives her these like big land grants and money sort of as a thank you for her Mm. service kind of a thing but in a way it's just like sort of perpetuating the same like moneyed elite status quo that existed before the independence war so it's like it's the kind of thing where like she's doing really good work and yeah. it's like a good first step but you want her to be like an anarcho-socialist freedom fighter like giving money to the people robin hood style and that's just like not quite that the place the she's way that at panned out. yeah or like i mean i'm sure that long on the road like fighting 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 the second you get some relief and then you want to pass it on to the next people to fight. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I can't really fault her for that. Like, she put her time in. Yeah. You can't win all the battles. No, but she won hers. Or at least, like, all the fights. didn't... Fight all the fights? Yeah. Something like that. Huh. Nice. All the names were worth it. I like her. I think also, so. Also, I'm very aware now, like, how much... Um, Mexican history, I don't know if it's not in relation to the United States. Same. Right? So we know about Texas and the Alamo and, like, the fight over California and things of that nature. Like, the settling of Florida as, like, a Spanish colony. Mm-hmm. And how they kind of took the southern hemisphere while we, well, English, western 
European. Oh yeah, you since you you had that Florida history class, so you would you'd have gotten a little yeah, bit more Ponce of that. Yeah, Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth. Yep. Uh, and pigs. Do you know that the pigs is a huge thing with him? What? So he, so he Clearly. brought. So like he, when he went on his expedition to like find the Fountain of Youth, yeah. brought a bunch of pigs with him to eat, oh, but no. the pigs all carried smallpox with them, oh, and so there's this massive smallpox epidemic that sort of follows behind his expedition and when people came back like 10 or 15 years later they thought he was making like complete stories up because they were like what do you mean they're like big cities and like large groups of people everywhere because there wasn't anyone because they had all died nope yeah sorry I missed that in fourth grade <laughs> yeah that's when I was that learning Florida history unsurprised um, Our teacher took a detour and was like, let's talk about manatees now. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, but there's this really great podcast. Frank um, is dreaming. Oh, it's so cute. Sorry. Keep going. There's a great podcast called. There's a, um, called the Revolutions Podcast. I know I've talked about it a couple of times, but they just finished doing a series on the Mexican Revolution, which was really interesting because that wasn't something that I knew about like at all. Is that all. the 19-teens? Yeah. That's the like... A lot of Pancho, revolutions happening then. Yeah, Pancho Villa, Zapatistas, sort of whole situation. Um, but that was really cool because it is this, like, the whole history that is so proximate and in so many ways closely tied to U.S. history. Mm-hmm. But I knew almost nothing about. Cool. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. I'll have to check out the, the movie about the gender fluid actor who's oh yeah being Stage challenged by now please do yes it's really good it's a fun one claire danes some guy i can't remember the name of right now but is in a lot of stuff very cool i love it thanks michael thank you katie we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of missing history if you have suggestions for women you think we should profile email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com you can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.